morning, everyone. Welcome to Regen. Uh, we're so glad to have you. And I'm also glad that like that burning light in the sky is like showing. So that's pretty cool. Um, you know, we're almost through February. Just hang in there. A couple more weeks, we can do it. Um, but here at Regen, we're passionate about interrupting people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. And so I hope that this morning, as you sing and as we listen to the sermon and as we just spend time together, that your life will be interrupted by his love and his grace. And there's a couple other ways that we do that for um, people in the community. The first is through our check-ins. So this month, our check-ins go to A21, which is um, a global organization that rescues men, women, and children from slavery. So um, if you're on Facebook and have an account and want to check in, say you're at Regen, and use the hashtag RegenGives, that'll generate a donation to help end slavery. Um, We finished our February one thing this week. We delivered um, retail gift bags uh, to gift bags to retail employees in Champion on Valentine's Day. It was a really fun experience. Um, We had a couple people that uh, were just really overwhelmed and blessed. And yeah, the guy at the tattoo place cried. So you know, we're just spreading a little a little joy. Um, So that was our February one thing. Coming up, our March one thing is going to be our Easter egg hunt. And Lindsay's going to be, I believe, out in the lobby after the service. And what we need your help with is stuffing Easter eggs. So she's putting them all in, like, bags that will be – see, I have to keep saying the word bags in front of you all. I can't say it right. You do it so well. Bags (laughs) Um, full of Easter eggs. So you can take those home and um, buy some candy, stuff stuff the candy in the Easter eggs, and then bring um, them back. And then we'll hopefully get through. I think we ordered around 3,000. So no big deal. You know, we can do this. Um, So we'll be working on that from now until March 24th, which is when the Easter egg hunt will be. And it'll be at 3 p.m. here at Otterbine. Um, Also coming up, March 4th is our feast. It's our breakfast-themed feast. So that'll be at our house uh, Sunday night, March 4th at 6 p.m. And then All the way into April, we are having um, a couples conference, April 20th and 21st, for dating, engaged, and married couples. So just kind of want to get that on your calendar. We're really excited about that. We think it's going to just be a really fun weekend of um, growing together as um, couples and as like a community, both with this campus and the the Grace campus. So I think that's it. Ooh, no. Also, March 18th. So many things happening, people. Um, March 18th, we're doing Discover Your Gifts, and so we're going to talk about um, how God wants to use you particularly and the way that he's made you to interrupt people's lives, love, and grace of Jesus. So we'll be looking at spiritual gifting, and we um, look at the five-fold gifts, which are apostle, prophet, evangelist, help me out here, shepherd, and teacher. Um, so we're looking forward to that as well. That'll be the first time. Is that five, Aaron? He was like counting and I was making me doubt myself. Okay, good. Um, so we're excited about that coming up March 18th. It'll be right after the service. We'll have lunch with that as well. Um, and so I do think that is the end. We are excited for those of you who haven't heard Zoe Byler, Zach and Jenna's baby daughter is home. So we are, that's kind of a little, that's why they're not here this morning. They're, I think maybe hoping to bring her next week. We'll see, but okay. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so a lot going on, and I think we're like in this interesting stage in our church life where um, we have the ability to do more, but we're not trying to just do Christian busy. We're trying to like be purposeful. So, um, and, and so interesting about that, and like pray for us as we continue to discern. We just don't want to do stuff just to do stuff. We want to do stuff that really accomplishes our mission. So um, one of the ways that we accomplish our mission is just through what's given every week in person and online, like that 
means that real people are interrupted. So like this week, all of those gift bags that we packed, that comes out of just what you give every week. And so a lot of opportunities just to connect with people in Champion and have those conversations. And the heart behind those gift bags is this idea that the church is used to people asking them for stuff. And we want to be the church that gives stuff away. And so um, uh, especially in the community, we just want to be known for that. It's always really fun to walk into those businesses with these bags because they look kind of stricken, like, oh gosh, how do I like not have to talk to this person? But they're always really glad. So that's what your giving is doing. And um, so yeah, let me pray. And then if you don't give in person, a lot of, a lot of us give online and that's great too. So, but uh, let me pray. Hey Jesus, thanks for the gift of yourself. <sighs> Father, um, I think so much of this week, I've really just been trying to keep who you are in front of me and, and remind myself of true things. And when stuff gets thrown at us that we didn't expect, that's what we need. We just need you to be yourself for us. And so God, help us to see you clearly and in catching that vision of who you are, help us to become generous like you. Help us to become loving like you. Help us to become uh, gracious and even holy like you are. So um, Father, form us today as we share, uh, share life in your presence. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. declaration that we are no longer strangers to you. We're no longer slaves to things that hold us in fear. That we can be your confident sons and daughters who live and react out of the hope that we have in you. And nothing else. We thank you for teaching us more about who we are today and who you are. We thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hi. Hey there. Welcome to Regen. My name is Kyle, and uh, if this is your millionth time here, welcome back. Um, if this is your first time, welcome here. Um, we hope that you find what a lot of us have found is that this is a place where you already belonged before you ever walked in the door and that you were loved before you ever walked in the door. And our prayer today is that you kind of come to know what God thinks of you. And so, um, yeah, let's just jump in. Sons and daughters, let's just jump in. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2 this morning. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Wherever the nature of the Lord is spoken of, there he is present. This is an early church document uh, called the Didache. Uh, another way to think about it is um, where God's word is explained, God's voice is heard. That's why we give so much time to scripture when we gather together because we, we need to hear Jesus' voice. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. And so what we believe is what's happening now is it's less about the words that Kyle chooses and it's more about how God kind of interweaves the supernatural and the natural together to communicate to his people. So my prayer today is, and every week is that the prep that goes into the work that we, of what I'm going to share with you this week, it, it first hit me is what you need to know. So I'm a living example, not a perfect example, but that it somehow shapes us and calls us to be more like Jesus. And I've been really loving this series. It's been a lot of fun. So Revelation chapter two, we're going to look at the letter to the church in Smyrna, which begins in verse eight. I was thinking a lot about my years in drama club. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but there's this thing called breaking the fourth wall. 
and uh, it's kind of perceived as the, the back of the stage and the sides of the stage are walls one, two, and three. And then um, the fourth wall is the invisible wall kind of between what's happening on stage and the audience. And, and you see it in TV, you see it in movies, you see it in plays. They break the fourth wall, right? So they'll look out at the screen and talk directly to you. It's actually one of my favorite things because it's usually pretty funny. Um, the book of Revelation is breaking the fourth wall. It is us on stage and Jesus taking down the fourth wall so that we can come to terms with the, the, the bigger, even more cosmic realities that surround us and in which we participate. It is an unveiling of how reality is. It is a breaking down of the fourth wall. And this letter in particular, the letter to the church in Smyrna, Smyrna, uh, a city in modern-day Turkey, Smyrna needs that wall broken down so that they can define their present circumstances in the midst, they can define their present circumstances by the reality of who God is and the way the supernatural world works. And so um, I want to give us a little bit of background on the book of Revelation, and then um, once we've given you background on the book, a little bit about Smyrna. And, and for those of you that like, yeah, Kyle, we understand this stuff about Revelation, I want to drill this home because we have a lot of false views about the book. It's actually a lot more ordinary than we think it is, and then we'll talk about Smyrna. So Revelation is written by John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, who also authored the Gospel of John, the letters called one, two, and three. John, very creative. Um, and, and John, the beloved disciple, is exiled to the island of Patmos. Patmos is that little black dot on the map there. And while exiled there, uh, he is writing this kind of prophetic and apocalyptic work to help these seven churches with whom he is connected and familiar kind of understand their present circumstances. Seven being a literal number and a figurative one. Literally seven churches actual churches that John is writing to on behalf of Jesus, and yet seven being the number of completion, every church everywhere can, can absorb and hear from Jesus in these letters uh, and learn to be more faithfully the people of Jesus in our own lives and, and as our life together. And, and the book of Revelation, the core message is things are not as they seem. The word revelation comes from this word that means unveiling or uncovering. This week, I got Steph a Valentine's Day gift. Husbands, if you forgot, it's not too late. And bonus, the candy at CVS is going to be super cheap, right? Um, uh, she she apocalypsis she apocalypsed the box when she opened it. She revelationed the box when she opened it and found inside a watch. Um, that's what the word revelation means. It just means an uncovering, an unveiling, or a revealing. It's not... The book of Revelation is not a hidden code for us to discern what's happening in the news. It is simply an unveiling and a revealing of Jesus in the midst, in the midst of our circumstances. And last week we looked at that first letter to the, letter to the church in Ephesians, and this week we're looking at the, ch the letter to the church in Smyrna, which is number two there. Um, on this next slide, here's an actual picture of Smyrna. Smyrna still exists in modern-day Turkey uh, as a town called Izmir, and Izmir the third largest city in Turkey. Uh, these arches uh, are come from a, a structure built uh, at the turn of the second century, right after this was uh, written. And that spring flowing out of the wall, that was just recently discovered in the last handful of years. Smyrna uh, had printed on its coins um, the f first in Asia in size and beauty. 
is what they had written on their coins. First in Asia in size and beauty. It was called the crown of Asia or the flower of Asia, and it had this reputation for being remarkably beautiful, which was even more stunning when you think about in 590 BC, it was sacked to the ground, and in two, uh, two, 580, and then in 290, it was rebuilt, and the city was very proud of its resurrection, that you know we were nothing, and we came back, which is why Jesus even in part introduces himself as the one who was dead and is now alive, because he's like, Smyrna, if you think you're awesome, I'm actually the living one, right? Um, there's always kind of a, a smack there. Uh, Smyrna is what was called a free city in the Roman Empire, which means that they enjoyed privileges and freedoms unlike those that were not free cities. That's why, for example, they had their own currency. Uh, Their governing structure was relatively free. And yet Smyrna, whatever Rome was about, Smyrna was down with. So like, you know, like whatever, whatever, whatever Rome stepped in, like Smyrna was smelling it. You know what I mean? They were digging, they were digging Rome's chili. And, and so Smyrna was just totally sold out. They were the first city in Asia to be given the right to build a, a temple to Dea Roma. Dea Roma, the god of Rome, there was, a, there was an imperial cult, uh, a worship where uh, Roman citizens were required to worship uh, before an image of an emperor. And they were the first city in Asia to be given the honor of building one of those temples. They were so... Um, over the top about Rome that they actually built a, a, a temple to uh, the Empress Lydia, the empire, emperor's wife, and they built one to uh, the, the Senate. They built a temple to the Senate. They were just so into that. The, the letter to Smyrna is super interesting for a couple of reasons. I mean, Jesus through John wants to address some real serious opposition going on in the in the city in the church in Smyrna, uh, because they're not participating in the emperor cult. They're under tremendous opposition and even persecution, and that's why the letter to Smyrna is the shortest letter, and it is also the reason that that letter has no complaint. Almost all the letters kind of start with like, "Here's this good thing you've got going on, but I have this complaint against you." There is no complaint in the letter to Smyrna. Why? Well, because if you already you, you don't want to kick them while you're down, right? The church in Smyrna has enough problems already. They don't need to kind of like work on anything. They simply need to, and the invitation of this letter is to be faithful in the midst of that. And interestingly, we talked about last week, the the church in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus uh, died out by AD 200. It disappears from the uh, from the historical record. In fact, six of the seven churches written to in Revelation disappear. They die. The only one that still exists is Smyrna. Um, which is even more significant when you think about how they were faced with persecution, they were faced with opposition, they were in abject poverty, and yet they survived. Um, and so we're going to look at a church that kind of makes it through. You know, the beginning of the book of Revelation says, blessed is the one who hears these words and obeys them, right? So Smyrna heard and obeyed. They didn't just hear like the other six churches. So let's look at that letter. It's in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, and it says this. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is alive, who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. Verse 9, I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Okay, not very PC, Jesus. Um, Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to what the Spirit 
listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. Now, before we go anywhere, we need to talk about how John, or Jesus through John, addresses each of these letters, the, write this to the angel of the church of blank, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to what have you, to Pergamum. The question we should ask is, what's with all these angels? Because if scripture repeats itself, it's an invitation to pay attention. If scripture repeats itself, it's an invitation to pay attention. Because they didn't just have like notebooks lying around. They couldn't run to Office Max for more copy paper when they ran out. So if they repeated themselves while writing scripture, it meant something. And so each one of these letters begins the same way. Write this message to the angel of the church of whatever. And, and, and so what we have to wrestle with is what does that mean? Well, it, it comes from the Greek angelos, which means simply messenger. Angels are really just messengers. But the question becomes, is this letter addressed to a human messenger, i.e. Kyle is the messenger of the church in regeneration, or is it written to like an angelic being? Is it written to an actual angel? The, The trick is, John, every time he uses the word angelos, every time he uses that angel word, it never refers to a human. It always refers to a spiritual being. So for John to introduce that category the first seven times as, as, as human beings, then change to angelic beings would be wrong. So what we're left with is John is serious when he says, write this message to the angel of the church of Smyrna, that there is some sort of angelic being being addressed and incorporated in this message. Now, angels are found throughout the Old and New Testament. They're found everywhere. Uh, and uh, they, they don't look like the precious moment doll on your mom's mantle or your grandma's mantle. They're not like cuddling a bear. They're actually pretty scary. Um, thank you, uh, Google Images, for that. Um, and evidently the many, many people that are interested in drawing pictures of scary angels. But, but here's the deal. Anytime somebody sees an angel in scripture, they don't say, oh, you have a puppy in your hand. Can I cuddle with you? Um, they say, they, they fall to the ground. They're afraid. The angel has to say, fear not. Angels are throughout scripture. We see them as these warrior messengers, warrior messengers uh, deployed by God in the provision and protection of his people. So Psalm 91, Psalm 91 says, he will, con- he will command his angels concerning you to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Psalm 103.20, which I really like here, says, praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who carry out his plans, listening for each of his commands. Uh, the, these warrior angels endeavor to carry out the plan of God in the heavenly in the heavenly realm and in the earthly realm, for lack of a better word, and 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 so here's what's here's with these angels in the Book of Revelation. The angel named in each letter is somehow, on the one hand, in charge of the church and at the same time corporately identified with each church. And so as Jesus challenges the church to be faithful and and to be faithful in the midst of their circumstances, to follow him even under tremendous pressure, Jesus is commissioning his warrior angels, his warrior messengers, to intervene on behalf of the church's spiritual need. It says that he will command his angels concerning you. And so this is what this means for us. There are angels in our midst, and Hebrews even talks about how some have entertained angels without knowing it. That, and this happens in Scripture. People invite somebody in for dinner, and it turns out they're an, they're an angel. Uh, it would seem that 
our resistance to believe that there is an angelic being among us who is endeavoring for our holiness and for our good and for us to live out the vision that God has given us, that simply puts us in the minority of most Christians in most places, even right now in the world. I mean, talk to Art and Pam about living in Southeast Asia. Like the angelic and the demonic are just a part of the way that life is. It's just because we have cell phones like technology that make us feel like we've pushed these things back. But here's really what's happening. I mean, there, there's, there's an angel assigned to this church, and that shouldn't come as a surprise either because the early church often fell into worshiping angels. I mean, Paul warns the church in Colossus, in Colossae not to, not to worship angels, and it's probably because they were singing to Jesus and they believed so strongly there was an angel in their midst. They were like, let's throw him a song too just in case, right? And, and that's, that's kind of extra biblical. So here's what this means for us, and I think this is important. At most, we could say that there is an angel assigned to our church or to our region of churches that is endeavoring with us to protect us, to provide for us, to provide for us, to help us as we accomplish the mission Jesus is giving us. Bare minimum, here's what we learn about God. God will use every resource at his disposal on our behalf. And that includes the heavenly host. He commands his angels. He will, use, he will use every resource available to him. Every resource available to him to endeavor on our behalf. And remember, here's what's happening. The fourth wall is being broken down for Smyrna. And they are now seeing their circumstances in light of what is happening. The unseen and yet entirely still real world. And what they are finding is that their circumstances are, their circumstances are the natural and the supernatural seamlessly interwoven. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus bringing the kingdom says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was saying that the the kingdom of heaven was actually invading earth. And so that we as the people of Jesus carry around with us this, this like piece of territory that is at once heaven and at once earth. And what, what John wants this church to see is that their circumstances are not purely what they can see with their eyes. Their circumstances have supernatural spiritual ramifications, the natural and the supernatural seamlessly interwoven. And if John is going to talk about Satan and he's going to talk about demons and he's going to talk about oppression, he's sure as heck, actually maybe sure as heaven, better be telling us about angels, right? He sure is. He, sure, he should be telling us about the multiple forces at play and the unseen realm. So John introduces these problems in verse 9, and he says, I know about your suffering and poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they're Jews, but they're not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. He says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil's going to throw some of you into prison to test you. You're going to suffer for 10 days, but if you remain faithful when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. John says that they are suffering, and the word he uses here is the image of a giant boulder placed on the chest of a person slowly being... In other words, Algebra 1, right? Um, A giant boulder crushing a person slowly to death. The best word here is pressure. They, is pressure. They are under intense and, and, remark, and remarkable pressure. And, 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 and this church in Smyrna is oppressed. And here's what's happening. First of all, there's political oppression because the Roman rulers do not like these Christians who refuse to participate in the, in the worship of, their, of, 
of the imperial cult. And in fact, Grant Osborne, a commentator, says, the imperial cult permeated virtually every aspect of city life so that individuals could aspire to economic prosperity and greater social standing only by participating to some degree in the Roman cult. And so these, these Christians who are business owners and have families and live in homes are finding their landlords kicking them out, are losing customers, are losing their businesses, they're losing their income uh, because they will not participate in the Roman call and, and you don't want to get their cooties kind of a thing. The Romans are actively kind of oppressing them, which is why they're poor. Listen, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, in the book of Acts, when they're like sharing everything in common, it's not because they're socialists. They're sharing everything in common because they're poor. As my friend Jerry would say, they're po, like they can't even afford the, afford the OR, right? Um, they're poor. They, this is why they share everything in common, because they have no other choice. I mean, they are facing political, political oppression. Then there's also this religious oppression from Jews that John says are the synagogue of Satan, because what they, for a long time in, in the first decades after Jesus rose, kind of Rome assumed that Christians were a subset of Jews and Jews were kind of given an exemption from participating in worship of the emperor cult, kind of. They had to burn incense and make a sacrifice, but not in front of an image of the emperor. It kind of felt like it feels like a sellout. But now that Christians are becoming a problem, Jews don't want to be associated with them. So Jews are kind of infiltrating Christian ranks and informing on them. And so now they are faced by religious oppression from the Jews. They are faced by political oppression uh, from, from Rome. This is causing them to be poor. This is causing them to be in poverty. This is causing great suffering, great pressure on their, excuse me, on their life. But here's, here's the thing that John is, and Jesus is so thrilled about is that in this culture that is telling them to conform, in this culture that is telling them to flatten themselves out, to take sandpaper to the rougher edges of the faith and to water down truth, the church in Smyrna says, we will not do that. The church in Smyrna says, no, we will not compromise. We will not imitate. We will not flatten ourselves and smooth ourselves out to become more acceptable to you. We will be the people of Jesus. And so John says to that, as he breaks the fourth wall, that there isn't just political oppression and religious oppression going on, that there are spiritual forces manipulating both to create the pressure that they're experiencing. So it's not, Dan, I, I did a math thing. It's not religious leaders and political leaders equal pressure. It's religious leaders and political leaders and spiritual forces manipulating both to create that pressure. And John says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. He says, the devil's going to throw you, some of you into prison to test you. You'll suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. I mean, let's remember, what is the message of Revelation? Things aren't as they seem. It's breaking the fourth wall. It's not just political and religious oppression, that there is spiritual realities, the supernatural and the natural, seamlessly interwoven. So that John introduces this letter from Jesus, who is the first and the last, who is dead but is now alive, there's talk of victory in verse 11. There's talk of a crown of life in verse 10. The natural, the supernatural, seamlessly overwoven, interwoven, but here's the truth. Like Satan, the enemy, the accuser of the brethren, who Peter says prowls around like a lion seeking somebody to devour, Jesus has conquered him. This is why he is introduced as the first and the last and having the crown of life and having overcome the second death. The, the, the enemy has been defeated. 
Like Satan's power in this world is still real. Satan's authority in this world is still real, but it is so minimal, y'all. It is so infinitesimally smaller than it ever could be so that, uh, th- that while this is kind of in this last little bit of history, Satan is kind of given a little bit of rule and reign, it is going to be eventually conquered. And listen, Jesus even has already conquered him. And that's what they want. he wants them to see. He wants to draw their eyes to the unseen realities that Satan has been defeated. So that in Colossians, Paul says that in Christ's life and death and resurrection, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That God has put Satan and the, and the forces of darkness, demons, to open shame, that they are effectively powerless. And whatever, whatever realm and authority that they do have in this is so minimal. And in the end, Jesus has conquered it and he is in control. And so he says to them, do not be afraid of the things you are about to suffer. He says, don't be afraid of that. So you're going to be thrown into prison. You're going to be accused. You're, these, these, things that you, these leaders that you can see with your eyes that are oppressing you, they are being manipulated by darker and sinister spiritual forces, but I don't want you to be afraid of them. <laughs> he says, don't be afraid of them. Now, really quickly, it's easy for us to ex- see overlap in the Smyrnans' experience of suffering in ours. We suffer for a variety of reasons. They happen to be suffering because of persecution and other reasons. There is not as much overlap between persecution for us and for them. And let me tell you why. Unless you are actively memorizing scripture for fear that the government is going to take your copy of your Bible away, you are not in persecution. Unless you were driven here in the back of a car with a blanket over you, you are not being persecuted. If you're going home to a house that's climate controlled and you're not worried that the government's going to bust in the middle of the night and drag you out, you're not being persecuted. When you buy your grandchild or your child or a friend a devotional to kind of point them to Jesus and they act weird about it, that is not persecution, that is just awkwardness. When your Jesus life does not make sense to your friends and your family and they ask you, that's not persecution, that is confusion. And even um, Paul says that the gospel is an offensive odor. Oftentimes what Christians assume is persecution is them making the gospel more offensive. Persecution, when we hear that word, should stir us not to look for the ways that we are being victimized in our culture, but to pray for people in China and in the Middle East and in parts of Africa and Papua New Guinea and the Philippines and in Southeast Asia that really legitimately actively are being sought by their governments so the church would end. We're not being persecuted. We are suffering. We are suffering people. We understand loss. We understand poverty. We understand need. We understand anxiety and fear. And this is why what Jesus says in chapter 2, verse 10, is applicable to us. He says, don't be afraid of the things you are about to suffer. This is remarkable because John just said, hey guys, I know that you're being crushed to death by a boulder, but I don't want you to be afraid. He said, I am, you're going to get thrown into prison, but I don't want you to be afraid. You're being falsely accused by those who, who say they, go to, they belong to a synagogue, but they're not. Don't be afraid. He says, your political leaders are not going to understand you. They're going to actively oppress you. Don't be afraid. He says, don't be afraid of the things that you're about to suffer. And it is here in this place that the gospel becomes so upsetting. 
this is where the gospel becomes perturbing and actually using A.W. Tozer's language from the devotional reading together. It, the, the, the gospel says that we do not need to be afraid of suffering in a world that goes to every extreme and will spare no expense for comfort. Our whole lives as Americans are organized around our comfort. It, it affects the clothes we wear, the houses we buy, and the minute we're uncomfortable, it is as if people are drowning puppies in front of us. I mean, it is so deeply offensive to us. We are terrified of pain. We, are, we abhor discomfort. Culture is our, uh, comfort is our culture's idol. You should never have to be afraid. You should never have to suffer. You should never be, tell, be told no. We'll make loans available so that you can have any house you want, even if you are making $5 a year. And in this place, this is where my greatest concern as a pastor for us as a community is that we forget that the gospel does not support that idolatry. It challenges it. We forget that the gospel does not support that idolatry. It challenges it. God is not invested in your comfort. He's invested in your holiness. And the promise of scripture is that when things happen and things have happened to us and things have happened to you and we're learning to walk through those things together, that when those things happen, the promise of scripture isn't that God is going to remove the pain. He is not Novocaine. The promise of scripture is that he will be present with us in our suffering. He will suffer with us as a suffering God and he will utilize suffering for his own purposes and for our good. So Joseph, a guy who is thrown into prison and falsely accused of rape, who is sold into slavery by his brothers, whose life is hellish, at the very end of his life says, these things happened for good. What you intended for evil, God intended for good and for the saving of many lives. That is the grammar and the language and the vocabulary scripture uses to talk about suffering. Not, I will remove all the pain. And, and here's, here's the thing. And this is going to blow us away. Our crises are not God's crises. The divorce is not a crisis to God. The depression is not a crisis to God. The anxiety is not, a, is not a crisis to God. The miscarriage, the infertility, the cancer, these things are not a crisis to God. They are very urgent to God. Scripture says God is near to the brokenhearted. I mean, God sees need and hurt and he flocks to it. I mean, like a magnet. It is urgent, but it is not a crisis. The only crisis in God's eyes, the only most dangerous thing, the, the, the only truly fatal thing in God's eyes is death apart from Christ. Everything else is manageable. And, and here's what happens is when we get to this place where our, our, our crises um, overwhelm us and they're real and they're true, what we begin to do is evaluate God and his character from the perspective of our crises, of evaluating like our crises from God's perspective. And this is why when you're not in a season of suffering, the most important thing to do is get your roots down deep into scripture, get your roots down deep in developing a vocabulary for prayer so that when it hits the fan and it's going to hit the fan, you're kind of able to stand from this perspective and with God observe what's going on in your life and not perceive it as a crisis in which everything that you know to be true about God goes away, but to stand there and look at it and fully participate in it and be anxious and be worried and be heartbroken and weep and 
scream and yell, but still have somewhere deep inside of your soul the conviction that God is faithful and God is good and God is true even in the midst of this thing. And if there's like a gap between these two things, I have been jumping it for the last four years, okay? So this is not set out of uh, nothing's hard ever happened to me, what's wrong with you, get it together. It's said with this heart of, looking suffering square in the face and still recognizing that my crisis is not a crisis to God. In fact, in God's eyes, there are no emergencies. And what is an emergency to us? What is, what is a crisis to us is something that God in his character and his goodness just walks into calmly. Jesus has this thing that he says in the Gospel of Matthew that's very frustrating. He says, don't be afraid of those who could kill the body. He says, be afraid of the one who can throw body and soul into hell. Oh, thanks, Jesus. Where's, there's, that, there's no banner with that, right? You know. <laughs> Here's what Jesus is getting at. What Jesus is getting at is like the worst thing to happen to us isn't getting old. The worst thing that could happen to us isn't getting sick. The worst thing that could happen to us isn't depression or infertility or miscarriage or or, or any of the things that overwhelm us in life. That's not the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing that could possibly happen is to experience these things apart from God. The worst thing that could possibly happen is to die apart from Christ. And this is why Jesus has kind of two bits of comfort in the, for the church in this letter. The first thing that Jesus says is, uh, the trial will last only 10 days. Okay, that is not a promise that anything that hurts you will last only 10 days. I wish it was, but it doesn't seem to be working for me. Here's what it means. It will not go on forever. That thing that sucks right now will not go on forever it might go on for a very long time. It might not end until you die. It's like the guaranteed end point. Everything else before that is almost a bonus, right? And even if you die, death is not fatal because he says in verse 11, um, whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. And I'm, I'm a Christian in Smyrna and I am waiting for somebody to come in and drag me and my family in the middle of the night into an arena to crucify us or throw us to lions. And uh, we were poor and I've lost my businesses and, and I have to rely on my neighbors for food and uh, my kids are hungry. I'm starving because I'm barely eating. I'm, I'm giving them all my food and I'm, I'm living in constant terror. I'm 24 years old and I've got kids. I mean, life expectancy at this point is next to nothing. And yet what gives them hope in the midst of their suffering is simply this idea that even if they die because of that, that's not the end of the world. What would be the end of the world would be dying apart from Christ. The good news of the gospel in this is that we know that there is an ending date. Like God, here's the thing. This is why that 10 days is important. It's like God isn't playing with you. Like God hasn't put you in this thing to test you to see how long you can last. There is an ending. And even if it's fatal, it's not fatal in the most dangerous way. I mean, this doesn't help all the time, but sometimes it does help me to think about how in the eternity of my life in Christ, 
the 60, 70, 80, 90 years I will spend will only be a blink of an eye. I mean, I'm 29 and I've still got at least probably 60 more to live. But there's something about that that transforms. And, and so here's, here's what I, I want you to hear today, my friends, sons and daughters, here's what you need to, hear, need to hear, is you are not victims. We are not victims to fate. We are not victims to like a, this hostile world. We are not victims to a world that supernatural things are swirling around us that we can't even see. We're not victims to this. We're not, the church in Smyrna, we're not victims to oppression, political or religious. They weren't victims to poverty. They weren't, we're not victims to disease or to infertility or to divorce. We're not victims to unhappiness and disappointment. We're not. The witness of scripture, ironically, is we're not victims. We're victors. We're not victims. We're victors. Look at, uh, if you've got a Bible, look at me at uh, Romans chapter eight. Like just flip backwards a little bit to Romans 8, and maybe you need to like circle this, circle this and spend some time with it this week, because this is, regardless of whatever crap you're waiting through, like I don't care if your life is awesome or your life is the equivalent of like the trash pit in Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, like where like there's like this just gross brownish water up to here and things are just floating and we don't know what they are and there's a thing trying to grab me and drag me under. Um, this is true of us no matter what. We are not victims to that. In fact, this is what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 35. He says, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death, a.k.a. everything threatening this Smyrna's? He says no in verse 37. Despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Um, we, we've been watching the Olympics, and, and as a side note, my, my deeply held belief is that I am a very poor athlete at every sport I have tried, but I could be an Olympian in some obscure winter sport that I have never had the opportunity to do. Like, I could be an Olympic curler, we just don't know. <laughs> we just don't, because I mean, I could be really great at bobsled. There's nowhere to bob or sled here, right? Um, we're watching the thing where they go down the hill and then fly through the air, right, and then land. And the guy who won last night won the gold by nine inches. That's, I mean, that's, you spend four years of your life training to win by nine inches, right? I mean, like, yes, right, a football field through the air. I mean, you get me up on a chair and I'm a little queasy, right? Like, (laughs) you know, like, what the heck? Guys, our victory in Christ is not by nine inches. Our victory in Jesus is not by nine inches. Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Verse 38 says, So I am convinced that nothing, nothing could ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fear for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell could separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ. Church, you're not a victim. And this crap that you're walking through right now is only going to last a little bit. And even if it's the thing that kills you, if it's the thing that drags you under, it's, it's it's not eternally threatening you. And there's so much hope in knowing that there is nothing about your life right now that can separate you from God's love because you are not a victim. 
Let me pray. God, um, I know this is kind of hard for us to hear, especially when we're walking through hard seasons. And uh, God, I, I just pray that you would remind us of your love for us today. And, you know, explanations of how the universe work rarely help us in our lives. So, um, God, what we just need is your presence in our midst. And so, Father, I pray that you, um, that you, Jesus, would be fully present to us. You would stir in us faithfulness to the end, uh, like the church in Smyrna had, somehow under the greatest oppression. Give us hope today in the midst of our pain. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, a lot of why we practice communion even just comes from the idea that, like, we just need a snack while we're trying to make our way to heaven. All right? Like, we just kind of need, otherwise we get hangry. Um, and, and we need the presence of Jesus brought to us, and, and that happens. I mean, we believe that in the broken bread, um, that in this bread, which represents Christ's body, which was broken for us, ooh, party. We believe that in this bread and body that were broken and the cup that was poured out, the blood of Jesus, that he shows us that even in emptiness, we can be full. Even in brokenness, we can be whole. And so we come to this table with our brokenness and with our emptiness and just come to Jesus. Um, and so the way we practice communion at Regen is super simple. Um, you'll come, someone will rip off a piece of the bread. You dip it in the cup, taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, if you have a pulse, you are welcome at this table. If you do not have a pulse, we have significant problems. But if you have a pulse, you are welcome to the table of the one who died for the sins of the whole world and said to all, come who are thirsty, come who are hungry, eat and drink, and I will give you rest. So um, we're going to do it this way. We're going to do it. Um, actually, Harry, would you come help me? And uh, uh, Aaron and um, 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 Steph. Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup, that they might become for us the body and blood of Christ, that in the eating and drinking of it, we might be the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood, made whole in our brokenness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The table is open. Yeah, so despite anything that you may believe or what you think, you are exactly who God says you are. Um, and he is exactly who he says he is. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is always entirely himself. Um, I love you so much. Uh, grab some Easter eggs on your way out and stuff them. And uh, we'll see you next week. Love you.